Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning, and welcome to Military Network Radio. We are so glad that you're with us this morning, and we are very excited about this program. We have so many times discussed the issue of PTSD following combat, or even first responders after very traumatic events. And today we'll be talking about specifically coming home from war and the shattered expectations of what you think is going to occur and what does occur personally upon return. I'm joined today, or I will be joined um, shortly by Jason McNamara, my co-host, and I'm delighted to be able to have this um, duo talking today. Jason, are you with us? Hi, this is Jason. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you very well. It's good to have you on. I know we have technical difficulties from time to time, but we managed to over overrule them, it seems, which is yes. a blessing. So I'm glad that you're here. I was just saying that we're going to be discussing uh, PTSD after combat today and what expectations and training and the fact that no matter the training, no matter the experience, it appears that whenever you return from combat, you're changed. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that the interesting point is that people feel like if they have gone to combat, they know exactly what it's like to return each time. But the world changes while you're gone. Your world at home, um, your world professionally and personally. And would you say it's accurate to say that you can be kind of overwhelmed with the speed in which you return from in-country to home and what that feels like. Can you draw a picture of that in your experience for us? Yeah, sure. You know, when um, when I was deployed to Iraq in 2003, um, we were the first to invade. And we had, um, I was involuntarily extended, which means that I was um, supposed to get out. But because of the wartime, I was asked to deploy. Um, what that did for me on the back end was that as soon as we were done invading, um, I was one of the first to, to go home. Um, there was essentially a 60-day window from the time that I left Iraq until the time that I was um, honorably discharged from the military and successfully transitioned. And so when you think about that 60-day window and the implications that it has on, on one's ability to adjust, to realign themselves, and to really just, just um, figure out what's going on, um, rapidly diminishes when you shrink that window. Um, mm -hmm. that, that story is not unique, right? There's lots of, of military men and women that have served where um, they were deployed and they come home and sometimes weeks later they're um, put back into their communities and expected to thrive and succeed. And so it's a challenge, right? And, I, and when I look mm -hmm. back at some of those experiences, um, at the time I was, I was married and um, was going through a rough time, as, as one can imagine, returning from war and mm -hmm. reacclimating to a personal life. And, um, and it's just, it, it's a tough time. And uh, I didn't have anybody. I had nobody uh, for, for me. I was just by myself and I was plugged back into my social friends 
mm-hmm. um, back in, in Chicago and um, was you know forced to find my way through it all. So it is tough and it is overwhelming and it rapidly changes and um, you don't know what's going on with yourself until you can look back and go, wow, that was a pretty crappy time. (laughs) (laughs) There's uh, an understatement. Yeah. You know, as you, you say, you went through it alone. I venture to say that each of the services and you're a Marine would say that, well, we trained you to go to war and we, you know, gave you a transition period to come back. Do you feel as though there's as much attention paid to coming home and readjusting as there is to training up? Well, I, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think um, generally um, we can always do better at, at catching folks, right? That's why squad mm-hmm. leaders sort of exists. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain well, I, that to our listeners who may not sure. know about squad leaders? Yeah. Yeah, actually, and we have some great news. So um, Squad Leaders was a non-for-profit that was started um, by my best friends and me, uh, both former Marines. And um, as of last month, we received our official 501c3. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. So um, we're, we're well underway. And um, what we've essentially done with Squad Leaders is establish um, a peer-to-peer mentor network that allows um, to create a safety net, if you will, for veterans that are transitioning um, out of the military, combat or otherwise, um, and align them with another veteran that's just a couple steps ahead of them, right? They sort of understand the power of experience and um, they've gone through most of the time what the other fellow veterans have gone through. So, um, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, when I enlisted in the military and I think about all the prep work that had to get done, Mm -hmm. and then I think about how I transitioned out of the military and all the prep work that had to get done, those two windows are very different, right? And, um, you know, when I enlisted in the military, I had about a year window um, to really ramp up my expectations and work with the recruiters and other resources that were available to me, be it for physical fitness or mental ability or what have you, and really get me honed in, ready to start my training. Um, When you look at the other side of it, you know, um, the transition programs that are established by the military are, are um, sort of a check in the block, and they, they haven't really improved in the last 15 years. Uh, and they're days, not, not even weeks, right? And so right, right. thinking about what, what that has to look like for a transition out, you, we have to turn to the community and, and really sort of ask for help in this way because the military is not designed, at least the way it is now, to, to transition these folks. So would you say that you filled your time during that period with busyness and then with periods of introspection? Where was the real you at that point? Uh, leaving or, or entering? Uh, leaving, when you were yeah. transitioning out, when you were separating. Well, I don't think I was myself during any of that time, actually. Okay. Yeah, and, and only because you're, um, you're very introverted. Um, it's hard to associate with other folks. There's a mentality in the military where most folks can't relate to, and therefore you just sort of shut down um, and you stay within your your own little bubble, if you will. No, it makes it makes perfect sense, and that's one of the reasons we're talking to our guests today. We're going to be speaking with Michael Orban, an Army retiree veteran. Uh, he's an author, and he lived through 
a transition that many will relate to. He's a Vietnam veteran, and I will let Michael tell you more of his story. And we're titling this one, Shattered Expectations, PTSD After Combat, and how to deal with it, live with it, cope with it, manage it. And he's an expert on this, speaking regularly, and will be able to give us some personal insights because he works with groups of all eras and continues to serve as so many of you veterans do, Jason, you with squad leaders and Michael with his amazing books and his speaking. So Michael, we would love to welcome you to Military Network Radio this morning. Well, thank you very much. I'd love to be welcomed, honored to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. And as you hear from Jason, you're, you were a Vietnam era veteran returning and it's it's still true today. Everything that you wrote about, everything that you talk about is still here today. And let's talk a bit about that. Why is it that the personal experiences are still the same in terms of coming back and reintegrating? And and tell us what experiences led you to write and to study and to speak about PTSD and even secondary PTSD. Wow, powerful questions. Um... And thank you to Jason. I was listening to what uh, his experience has been. That's, mm-hmm. uh, it just falls in line with all of us. Uh, I think the most remarkable, in fact, I know the most remarkable moment when I look back over 50 years ago, I remember very, very clearly the day before I left Vietnam to uh, return home. And I had been an infantry soldier and spent all of my time in the jungles. Uh, I remember very clearly thinking to myself, you know, I'm going home to life as it had been before. I'm going home to my wife. I'm going home to my hobbies. I'm going home to sports. I love baseball. I was going home to friends that I had had since first grade. Uh, all of these expectations of going home um, were, were some of the things that actually kept me, uh, let's say, sane while I was uh, deployed in, in Vietnam. But it was almost immediate when I came home and walked in the door of our front, uh, our front door at home. Uh, to my family who had gathered, I just felt I was in a foreign country. I couldn't relate to them. I didn't have interest in what they were talking about, what they were doing. I didn't want to see my old friends. I had no interest in restoring antique cars that I had before. No interest in baseball or football. Absolutely no interest. I just felt numbed. I felt disconnected from love, from happiness, from joy. Um, and, and so I had a combination of things going on, and many of the things that I speak about today are all in retrospect, because I didn't have a built-in psychiatrist at the time explaining to me why I had gone numb, why I was isolating myself, why I was having all of these reactions from nightmares to panic attacks, um, to uh, just uh, disengaged and not uh, having any intimacy, and I'm not speaking of sexual intimacy, but uh, psychological or spiritual intimacy with my wife. All of these things I had been disconnected from, uh, even to the point that I I didn't actually see or at least recognize colors in life, and and I love nature. Uh, My dream had been to be an explorer or photographer for National Geographic, Yet when I came home, my vision seemed only to be used to guide me safely through wherever I was going. So in other words, I was uh, aware of booby traps behind trees in uh, in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, a beautiful community. Why would there be booby traps? Uh, Fishing lines uh, to this day remind me of uh, the the tripwire for booby Mm. traps. 
uh, going past an alley opening, I would be looking to see if somebody was in there. So my, my eyes were open only to what might be uh, life-threatening. Um, so I, I was having all of these, and again, what, what is confounding was not so much that I was having them, but that I didn't know why I was having them. And I think this is why I started to isolate myself more, because I didn't actually know who I was anymore. And the expectations had failed. And one of my dreams while in Vietnam was the GI Bill for college. Um, I was very much looking forward to going to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, a great college. Uh, and that would turn out twice to fail because in my attempts to go to school, I couldn't fit in. I was filled with anxiety. I couldn't absorb any more material. Okay, Michael, we're going to yeah. go on a very short break. I'm sorry to cut you off. And we will return after these short messages. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. It's words you never heard. Have you ever wondered where the terms used in computer speak originated? The word cookie, that packet of information that travels between a browser and web server, is named after the fortune cookie, a cookie with an embedded message. Rebooting the computer is literally pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The name Google was originally coined in 1938 by Milton Sirota, nephew of mathematician Edward Kasner, during a discussion of large numbers. Uh, Google is the number one, followed by 100 zeros. The word Yahoo was originally invented by Jonathan Swift and used in his book Gulliver's Travels. It's a derogatory term for a person who is repulsive in appearance. Yahoo founders Jerry Yang and David Philo selected the name because they considered themselves Yahoos. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Let's face it, the holidays can be fattening. Most of us are just trying to not gain weight at this moment in time. But I want to remind you to eat healthy and to eat often. Choose foods that will work for you, like protein, that will keep you satisfied in the short term so you will lose weight in the long term. Eating protein will make you feel fuller longer. It takes your body more time to break down protein and to use it for energy compared to other foods. Being satisfied means you're less likely to reach for junk food or sugar later on. Choose high-quality protein at every meal, like eggs, low-fat cheeses, nuts, grilled chicken, and fish. Keep your blood sugar levels stabilized by eating every few hours. Don't get so hungry that you will eat anything. Keep hunger at bay and watch your body slowly rid those extra pounds. Start the new year off right. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Michael Orban. And Michael, right before the break, you were talking about returning from combat and feeling disengaged and disconnected and, and really not even seeing color. Everything was in survival, black and white mode. Jason, this sounds remarkably like what you described. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of similarities there. And I, I think the interesting point, and we talked about this during the break, is that although there's a time difference between 
when when Michael served and when I served, um, the transition feelings and the process are still largely intact and, and hasn't changed. Michael, when you um, were were you so you, I, I heard you were a car guy. Um, can you explain how how you sort of felt um, disengaged from the activities that you were once so passionate about, and just tip into that a little deeper? Sure, I'd be happy to, Jason. I, I have to be honest, I didn't know at the time, and this is what was so frustrating to me. Uh, a lot of what I write about is in retrospect. I had no idea why it wasn't there. Again, I didn't have a built-in psychiatrist. I wasn't uh, getting any therapy or looking for any answers. I, I simply didn't know. And this is what caused me to go more into isolation. It caused me more to go into drinking. Uh, and I would drink with anyone at any time as long as we were drinking. I didn't care who they were or what we talked about. So I started to hide from it. it almost, in fact, I would say developing an, an alternative consciousness in alcohol so that I wouldn't have to think about these things that I didn't understand. Why was I having these panic attacks? Why was I disengaged from my family? Why was I not intimate with my wife? I mean, able to share anything, any of the stories or talk about war. Why did I have this screaming voice in me that was saying I wanted to yell to on the campus at Madison? if you only knew what human beings do to each other. So I think it was more that internally, spiritually, and psychologically, I was in a chaos that I did not understand. And so this became more complicated because I developed what I would call a facade, some people call a mask, and that was something I developed to show the world, especially my family and my friends, that I had been this successful warrior, that I was coming home the warrior that they wanted to see. The difficulty with this facade that I was building uh, was that it has no emotion, it has no feelings, it has no sensitivity. So uh, my family, my friends could engage the facade, but I couldn't let them behind there where love and joy and happiness were all vacant. And there was only this dark, this dark connection to what I refer to now as the, su uh, the, the um, survival mode that we had to go into at war. Um, and, and so I, I hope that's answering your question, Jason, but it was mostly because I didn't know who I was myself. Yeah, it's funny you say that. You know, when I think about my experiences, they're, they're almost identical, right? And I remember, um, I remember the first night sleeping in, in a bed that was normal. Um, and my wife, who's, who's my ex-wife now, but, but we're still very close, um, I, I remember waking up and choking her right mm -hmm. and and that's what i remember that that comment or, or that thought vague, like exceptionally clear um the part that's vague is everything that happens after that and uh i didn't realize how much fear i had brought out of myself and back into her and then of course it starts to trickle into um your social circles right. i and you know the 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 weirdest part about all of this at least for me and it seems like it's the same for you is that you have no idea what you're going through until after it's done. And it appears to be normal when you're going through it. And it appears that everything's fine. Although it's like this very mysterious, um, you know, deflection about what reality is really like. And, um, you know, anger and frustration and sadness and worriness and all those things live and are rooted in us. But it's so hard to communicate that um, when we're in it. And of course, when we're in it, we feel like we don't need any help or guidance and we can do this all by ourselves. And 
I'm sure, Michael, you can attest that the male ego doesn't help in that way, especially a military a military male ego. Um, and you know, I just look back and thinking um, how foolish some some things were, but then also how helpless in the same in the same way. Well, you're hitting some great points. The first one that that jumped right at me is that yes, we're too military. We're too we're, we're great soldiers. We shouldn't have this problem. I can't ask for help. The stigma, which maybe we can talk about a little bit later, probably for me and for those that I know, the largest and most powerful deterrent from actually going, I don't refer to it as getting help, as going to get answers. I needed answers. Um, so the stigma was really profound. But the one thing that I noticed when I came home, again, in retrospect, with it, it seemed that the experiences of war, the combat, and there were some that only lasted six seconds that were devastating. And I, and I refer to six seconds because that's a little bit longer than the time to empty a clip of uh, ammunition in an M16 uh, to kill uh, civilians by mistake. Uh, and then there was a long-term stress over 12 months of actually being hypervigilant in the jungles. But it seemed like the experiences were so many, the intensity and the volume had really, as if my mind were a computer, had shut my mind down, had overloaded my mind. And when I came home, I couldn't absorb any more information. And, and so, um, and, and I couldn't participate. So I was physically getting older, but psychologically stuck in that time at war. And so if somebody tried to engage this mind that was overloaded, uh, and I couldn't absorb any more information. It, it could spark isolation. It could spark a lot of people talk about anger. I take it deeper. This was rage uh, that would out because I simply could not participate in anything. And, and again, in retrospect, looks back and because all of this information that I had received at war, all of these experiences were either unresolved or unaccepted to me. So the the whole idea of going to to get answers, and I prefer to speak of it that way. If we stop and think that we were in three different cultures, or are in three different cultures, I was in the pre-war culture with my family, the Catholic Church, safety of old, a relatively good city, then completely changing into to the, uh, the culture of the military, which has its own legal system, its own objective, its own goals, its own dress, its own food, all of these things. Now we're transitioning into... The third culture, which is the one where we come home and we will be what I would refer to as warriors at peace, but that's the incomplete part. We don't go out and get the answers. We don't find the uh, the resolution to those issues that are on our mind, to what we are, to, to take this chaos that was inside of me and make it again harmonious with the world outside of me uh, that I now refer to as seeing life, and I will do this for the rest of my life, seeing eyes through a warrior. Or, or seeing life through the eyes of a warrior. Uh, yeah. I, can't, I can't see them through the eyes of the person I was before war. It makes no sense to me. Uh, and I think what I had to do was mourn the loss of that person that I was before the military or before war. Um, the, and that was something that, that was yeah, you know, you, you touch on something there about a new lens, right? Like new eyes. And um, I, I oftentimes communicate to people that it's a new sense of normal, right? It's not, you can never go back to where you were before. You just have to reevaluate and readjust yourself to this new sense of normal. And I do want to touch on that. Um, but I, I do want to go back to a point I think you, that you made clear is that 
this this notion of um, seeking answers and um, how it's perceived as weakness. And I, I'm just going to um, paint that a little clearer for some of our listeners. Um, so I remember distinctly two 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 scenarios. One, um, there was always this conversation around: um, Are you hurt or are you in pain? Right. And and um, the idea behind that is that most people are in pain. Very few people are actually hurt. Although what you find in training is that oftentimes you do have people that are hurt, um, but they don't necessarily voice it because of that culture that, that you mentioned. And I think that I touched on earlier, the other piece, um, that becomes interesting is, um, in, in one specific example, I actually had broken my leg and I was still training full duty on my leg. Um, even though I had a broken femur and so my, my left femur actually broke. And um, I had trained for three and a half months after my broken femur without telling anybody. Um, and I, I, I say that because um, it just highlights and sort of underscores the kind of environment that the military has proven to be successful in, right? Like the reason why the military is so successful and the reason why we're, we're, we're such a great force is, is part of because of that. Because we have our military men and women that sort of sacrifice certain things um, to get to the agenda and to, to put mission accomplishment ahead of troop welfare. Um, but it, it, um, it wasn't until I was actually physically removed from training. Um, and they said, okay, you, you, you can't train anymore. And your, your leg is clearly messed up where I was in the hurt category. Right. And I was, it was no longer in pain, but I, what I was trying to do was translate the fact that I had broken my leg, which is, you know, medically I was hurt. Um, but translate that into a situation that was just painful and continuing to push myself under that pain lens. And, um, and so the, and what's, what's interesting about that is that my peers in the military, um, only had respect for me, um, once they knew that I had a broken leg and I was training continually on my broken leg, um, up until that point when I was limping and complaining, uh, they would call me out as weak. They would call me out as, you know, a sissy, you know, a number of other military terms that are thrown around. But, um, but basically that I couldn't catch up with the pack. Right. And, um, and it just sort of underscores what, what I think you were talking about, Michael, with respect to how the environment itself, um, prevents this, this opportunity for folks to seek answers or in some situations, remedies, you know, for medically um, driven issues. What, what was interesting to me, if I look back on it again, coming from this uh, strict Catholic background, when I went into the military, uh, I was given basic training. I was given uh, advanced infantry training. Now, let's think about it. If we just went, they just drafted me and sent me to Vietnam and I didn't have any of these skills. I remember very clearly in medical training, uh, field medicine, that they told us if someone has a, a punctured lung to make sure or I think they, I believe they call it a sucking chest wound, uh, to make sure and put them, roll them so that their good lung is up so they don't drown in their own blood. I remembered this. Uh, I remembered how to, I can to this day, probably take an M16 apart and put it together in the dark. What if I didn't have that training and we were in combat and somebody said, well, direct fire over that. Well, I don't know how to load my machine gun. Well, then go help that man. That's, well, I don't know how to do What if we... Well, maybe we can pick up uh, with that when we come back, because I think it's very important that we would have been considered mentally ill or incapable if we hadn't had our training and ended up in war. Maybe we can relate that to coming Sure. Back. Yeah, no, excellent point. And I was trying to stay out of the way and let you two talk because the similar experiences are quite amazing. We're going to go on a short break and we will be back with more discussion with our guests, Michael Orban and Jason McNamara 
You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we will be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. someone accidentally? According to a report, for every 100 calls made to 911 this year, about 40 were dialed unintentionally. Recently, a mother in Canada called police after receiving a nightmarish cell phone call from her daughter, filled with blood-chilling screams and a man shouting murderous threats. Police discovered that the girl was at a movie theater in Victoria. Anticipating the worst, the cops were preparing to descend on the cinema when a dispatcher tried calling the girl's cell phone one last time. The girl answered her phone and explained she was not being attacked by a murderer, but was watching the horror film Cabin in the Woods. What do you call the activity of being impolite in a social situation by looking at your phone instead of paying attention to the person you are with? Subbing. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that you gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Before the break, we were talking about training, pre-deployment, and setting expectations. And um, those expectations being shattered upon return. Michael, why don't you finish up what you were talking about with training and the isolation piece? Yeah, I I think when I was... uh think back to when I was a child, all of my training culturally came to be a good Catholic and to be a good boy and be a good American, came from my parents, from social laws and rules and regulations, all trained me as exterior teachers uh, how to live when I was young. That transitioned into the military who took over and retrained me to be a soldier and gave me all of this training. Now, entering into the third culture of coming home as a warrior after war, it I, I never realized that it was up to me that I had to take control of teaching myself and getting the answers to learn how to be this warrior after war. And I think once I realize that, once I see that, we have extraordinary internal power to take control of this if we understand that we have to do the work ourselves. There's no psychiatrist that's going to sprinkle magic pixie dust on me and make all of these things go away. And medication, I was hugely medicated with uh, mirtazapine and olanzapine. And I believe this was just to anesthetize me through problems that the mental health community couldn't resolve. Uh, 
Um, and so that's why I eventually ended up writing my book, to get all of these things that had frozen my mind out onto paper where I could actually view them and then start to resolve or accept them. So would you say that you used your writing as a catharsis, as a means of expressing what no one was able to help you with externally? I would quantify that as exactly uh, <laughs> the, the reason I did that. I spent a lot of money uh, privately on psychiatrists before I ever went to the VA for help. And I became good friends with these psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh, but over time, the only thing they ended up doing for me was giving me tests to see what my IQ was and, you know, doing things with me because I think they just had no other way to resolve uh, what my issues were. And interestingly enough, none of them ever approached the topic of war, even though they had known I was a Vietnam veteran. So it was almost as if they felt uncomfortable approaching the topic because they themselves couldn't deal with it. Mm. So. Um, being unable to do this, I eventually, after 30 years, and there was a lot in between this alcoholism, divorce, uh, traveling, I isolated myself in the jungles of Africa for eight years, but eventually committed myself to the VA hospital in Toma, and they gave me a list uh, that they titled Common Responses to Trauma by uh, Dr. Patty Levin, who is a... Um, a trauma specialist in Boston. And I read down this list of about 22 reactions, uh, shock, disbelief, fear, grief, minimizing the experience, which I think was something I always did. I minimized the fact that it was so, so horrible. No, it was all right. I did okay. Um, avoiding anything associated with the trauma, overburdening others with problems, emotional numbing, uh, difficulty trusting. I went through this whole list of suicidal thoughts. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I was furious that I received this uh, not because of what was on the list, but I was furious that I hadn't been given this sheet of paper the day I left the military, because on that list I could identify with every one of these reactions, and I could now see what the cluster of reactions in my head was that had frozen me uh, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. But then again, I could go back to each one of them. I could go back to the rage or the nightmares and not just identify them as reactions, but then I could start to, uh, to understand them. Uh, for example, the rage. Well, it's nice to have rage, but what are you in rage at? And in this way, I was able to write because I could not uh, communicate or trust a psychologist at that time. Um, and, and I could write down and explain what was on my mind. Getting it, in, in other words, getting it out of my head, getting it on paper. And then I was able to do two things. And I still believe to this day these are the two things that most of us uh, can identify with having to do when we come home. And that's either resolve the experiences at war or just accept them. Uh, for example, accepting them, I mean, we have to accept the fact that human beings engage in this barbaric, savage thing called, called war. Uh, I just have to accept that. And studying history, it goes all the way back as far as I can go to the Battle of Thermopylae in Greece, you know, before the time of Christ. So uh, that I and I do accept that. And once I could accept that, I became a fulfilled warrior. I became satisfied because now I can accept that darkness. Uh, it doesn't control me. The post-traumatic stress doesn't control me. But I had to do one of two things, and that was accept or or resolve these issues from from uh, my experiences at war. Jason, does that sound familiar? to yeah, no, I was just about to jump in here. So, uh, you know, I think what's interesting, um, it, I um, <laughs> I was actually, I mean, l laughing in a humble way. But um, so 
the experience about removing yourself from public and moving to a different continent um, is something that I also did. <laughs> uh, it was I had actually um, left my life in Chicago and moved over to Germany for um, just about a couple of years. And so um, hearing you go through that um, reminded me exactly of sort of um, it was it was almost like a calling. I, I can't really explain it beyond that, but um, just that I had trouble diffusing myself into what I knew to be home and um, bringing that to a place where um, I wanted to get away and wanted to be removed from everything that I, I had come to know and then had to force myself to relearn and um, and ended up living in Germany for, for quite a bit of time and um, and working through that together, right? And sort of with myself and with um, the few people that I had met um, over in my travels, but bring, being able to facilitate sort of a retrospective um, insight into things that I was living and learning and trying to overcome. The two of you are talking about either resolving or accepting as phases. What do you think helped you the most as you both went through that? Was it the introspection or was it sharing with others? What would you recommend? veterans. Maybe, Michael, you go first. Uh, what I would recommend first, I, I had an experience after about 30 years that when I was home. In fact, this was right around the year 2000, right around the beginning of the Iraq War, um, which had some influence on me. But I had been through so much the, the alcohol and the running and the hiding uh, in Africa. And I went deep into the jungles where the pygmies lived and the people had no electricity or running water, any of that. Um, and met uh, Dr. Albert Schweitzer's hospital uh, and, and had some relief from that. I, I was educating myself without knowing it. But when I came back home, all of these uh, reactions, the, the same effects of PTSD were not only there, but they were much stronger than they had been before. So I started drinking more heavily, couldn't hold a job, but had no interest in anything. And th there was an experience in my living room. I lived alone. I wasn't drinking, wasn't taking drugs, wasn't hallucinating, where there was a, almost a physical sense that was standing before me just telling me to commit suicide. Just end this. Your mind is so damaged, it's beyond repair, and nothing's ever going to come out of your life. So suicide became a very, very, almost a, a friend to me, an out, you know, the ace in the hole, this will relieve the pain. And, and I remember having a choice in my mind, okay, either, either end it now or go get help. And that was the day that I called the VA and they put me uh, into the 90-day program at the VA hospital in Tomo, Wisconsin. I think that was really critical to see that, okay, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I don't have the answers. Somebody's going to have to direct me. And, and so making that decision to get help is one of the primary reasons I do the public speaking I do today. And that's don't go through the 30 years of waiting to eventually do what you're going to have to do anyways. Go get the help now because there's love, there's beauty, reconnecting with joy and life. It's there if you choose to go search for it. It's going to take work. You're going to have to uh, get the answers, but it's there. The alternative is not to look for the answers and do what I've done and many of my friends have done, and that's uh, waste 30 years of your life in alcoholism, workaholism, divorces, estrangement from children, and so forth. Yeah, you, you know, the, I um, just to sort of um, 
tip into that a little, you know, having experience with a number of veterans now that have um, transitioned successfully and others that have not so successfully. um, The one part that I think we've learned is that there's not really a a one size fits all. Um, You know, some veterans actually do well um, when they're sort of introverted and, um, and, you know, moving through some of these things by themselves with some, some guidance and course correction. Um, and other veterans do really well in social environments where they can leverage their peers. Um, you know, me personally, I think the, the one thing that I needed was time. Uh, and I think that's something that I would, you know, underscore and double click on, um, in every conversation, but it's this idea of time and it takes it takes a lot of time and it takes um, patience and perseverance and understanding that uh, you can arrive to the place that we, we hinted at um, a couple of minutes ago and that is this new idea of normal and once you can figure out that you are now in a new sense of normal uh, you, you have a clear pathway um, uh, being able to resolve and seek answers. And, um, when you're trying to put yourself back into the old way, it's sort of the square peg in the round hole kind of environment. And so, um, that's really, um, the one thing that I would just articulate is that it's, uh, you know, it's different for everybody. And, um, we as the community have to afford time and patience, um, to be able to account for some of the, the challenges, you know, I had, um, I served with, a, and I think Linda, I brought this up before, but I've served with um, some of the, the most professional professionals in the Marines. And um, we went through a severe interview, interview process and held to extremely high standards. And these were very, very much professionals um, in the industry. And as they come home, um, they find themselves in very similar stories that we're talking about today. One in particular that I've shared on the show before is is one veteran that um, had two DUIs in a month back to back, and um, ended up becoming you know physically abusive with his wife, and um, you know getting down a hole that is is virtually almost impossible to climb out of when you're in the middle of it. And when you look at him from a, a legal perspective, you see a mess, right? You see someone who's got DUIs and has, um, you know, physically abused um, his wife and arrested for, for such charges. And, um, but behind all of that is actually this veteran that is just trying to reacclimate themselves. And um, this idea of patience and time is exceptionally important in that kind of environment where you have those extreme cases that require um, a more delicate eye if I could say it that way. Well said. Well said. And we're going to go on our final break, and then we will come back and talk further about how to manage, how to cope, forgiveness, and reconnection. We'll be right back after these messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 
20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. don't cry, right? According to a recent Wall Street Journal article by Dennis Nishi, there's a stigma attached to turning on the waterworks at the office. 61% of men who reported crying at work cited personal reasons, an illness in the family, the death of a pet is the catalyst, while 58% of women said it was something that happened at work. Being unfairly blamed or criticized, men are like mascara. They run at the first sign of hubba-boo. That's another word for crying. What's the word for the fear of intense emotion? Zellophobia. Women may have a better excuse for crying than men, as females have higher levels of prolactin, which encourages the production of tears, making it easier to be known as a lacrimist or someone who cries at the drop of a hat. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're in our final segment. There's so much to share here. I would like to get to the part about the power of forgiveness, both with yourself and with others, and the time it takes to do that, and talk a bit about that aspect along with reconnection and what both of you would share with others as to how to how to get there as smoothly as possible so michael why don't you give that a start okay thank you i i I believe for me the words forgiveness and love were 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 two of the terms that were no longer my vocabulary or my feeling or sense uh, or tools that i was using when i came home um, we had uh, mistakenly killed civilians in the jungle, and it was very hard. How do you how do you find and actually feel forgiveness? Uh, and I'm not uh, I, again to say you're forgiven is one thing. To feel forgiven is another. How do you get forgiveness from someone who's dead on the other side of the world? I had to resolve that. I had to learn uh, to forgive myself. I had to learn to forgive others. And, and much more, this may sound a little bit weird, but I had to learn to forgive the human race for doing this thing called war because it's so absurd, it's so barbaric, it's so insane. And those were, were things that were difficult for me. But when I was in Africa, I, I'm one of the very few people, I'm not being arrogant about this, who, who actually met the pygmies in their, their um, native beautiful forest. And they explained to me that the, the forest gave them water, gave them food, medicine, shelter, everything that they needed to survive. And their only responsibility in life was to take care of the forest, which they considered to be their God. And it was that insight that this was something that I was part of something much bigger than myself. And I had realized that I had become so internalized with my anger, my rage. I'm mad at military because it wasn't what I wanted to be. I'm mad at war because it wasn't the way I want. You know, that whole internalization of this is me, 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 and realizing that I was part of something much bigger 
<clears throat> and if you see it, much more beautiful uh, than, uh, than I had been locked into believing or trained myself to believe. So it was getting out of that sense of me and seeing that there is beauty in the world, there are good people in the world, and wanting to be part of that again. Uh, that forgiveness was very, very important to me, and forgiving was very important to me. And reconnecting for me, which I never heard from uh, any mental health professional, uh, reconnecting to love, that ability to love and to feel loved. And I would add, I think it's very extremely important to, to learn how to be an honorable warrior after war, not taking this stuff home, not abusing other people, and create a world, be the strong warrior that creates a world around you that is safe for other people, the same way we tried to create a safe world when we went to countries that we didn't even know the people and tried to provide them with a safety. Uh, those were the things that were most important to me now. Yeah, you, you know, and just to echo on some of those those pieces, um, you know, when you think about being in the military and when you first learn some of the tactics and approaches that the military infuses in us, I think we, we talked about a few of them today, breaking down an M16 or being able to, to triage somebody. Um, it's a mental game, right? And um, you're put under these um, unique situations and you yourself as a warrior learn to have a game with it in such a way where you, you know, convince yourself and psych yourself into being able to do these things. And that's why we have, um, or partly why we have such a high success rate in our military is because our, our military members know the mental game really well and they can push themselves beyond normal limits. Um, you know, we hear lots of stories around um, injuries and, you know, limbs that were removed during an explosion and that person still continuing and, you know, all kinds of stories that we've heard about. And it's the mental game. But what's interesting about all of that is when you come back into civilian life, we lose sight of the mental game and we forget that we still have to play that in some way. And I think to Michael's point, there is an enormous responsibility on the system to take care of us, but there's no more important person than ourselves that would are responsible for the transition and it is a, it is a challenge for us and we should challenge ourselves to um to carry that the mental game into figuring out how to solve um, our transitions just like we would figure out how to solve a combat situation or we would push ourselves to higher limits um, and exceed our expectations during military operations the same applies when you're coming back home. And um, there is a tendency to sort of reach out and seek help, and we don't want to negate that because I think that's a really important part of the ecosystem, having responsibility for our veterans. But the responsibility starts with yourself, and it's re recognizing that there's a challenge in front of us. We do have to, I'm transitioning out of the military, I'm transitioning out of these, these experiences. I need to focus in on um, what I need, the issues that I have and how I need to remedy those and where I seek answers, just like we would in a normal military environment. If I didn't know how to, um, you know, you know, uh, triage using my blog kit, you know, I have to train on that. I have to study on that. I have to figure out what my answers could potentially be so that my training episodes become valuable so that in the time of war, it, it, it's more of a reactionary type of environment. I would say the same thing for when we're transitioning, that we have to figure out where we're weak and um, be very introspective into how we see our world and be very honest with ourselves and be honest with those around us and um, communicate in some way that 
um, we need time and we need to figure out how that translates um, into the civilian world, if you will. So that's one of the experiences that I, I would just um, underscore, and, and we, we try to instill that as squad leaders when we talk to folks, is that you know we, we're not um, actively recruiting veterans to mentor. Um, we're, we're looking for veterans that are seeking um, answers and seeking some, some support and so that we can push them to the next level and help their minds achieve those next goals, whatever they, those might be. You know, both of you, I find it absolutely fascinating that you talk about self-responsibility because I think that there's an emphasis in the culture, the, the VA culture and the medical culture to give you answers that may not include so much of your input. And what you're both saying, if I'm listening correctly, is that you are the ultimate person that will know what is working and which way you're going and how you wish to continue in that direction to heal yourself and to become the person you want to be, the warrior after war, to put it in Michael's terms. Michael, when you wrote the books, one is called Sold Out, S-O-U-L, the soul, Sold Out, and the other is Conquering Combat PTSD. We've got about three minutes to talk about these books, and I'd like it if you tell our listeners what they will find in each of those books and why it is helpful for them. Well, I think exactly what Jason and I are, are speaking about today is what's in the book, and, that, and that's making the transition. Uh, for example, uh, I find myself today in, in a position where I was not uh, years ago. I'm honored to be an American soldier. I'm honored to be a warrior. It took me a long time, but it took me a long time to take the warrior, the active at-war warrior, and let him be quiet in the back of my mind so that I can return to the love and the joy uh, of uh, being with my grandchildren, of uh, making a happy home, of these things that are important to me as a warrior after war. This is the transition that's most important. And, and if we go back to what Jason was speaking about, uh, when you're in the military, there are a lot of pressures on you to be a good soldier. There's Article 15, there's the peer pressure, there's all of this guidance that you have to follow. And we as soldiers come up with the respect, we come up with the honor to follow these things, to take these uh, lessons, this training, this supervision, this guidance, these orders. But now we have to provide those orders, that supervision, that organization, for ourselves, and I think this was what was lacking in me. And I believe if we really stop and think about it, we do have the power, an extraordinary power, if we if we decide to discipline ourselves as warriors to uh, to take the chaos that was there after war and turn that into a peace and calm internally that puts us in harmony with the outside world again, or puts us in harmony with our reality again. And that is really. Uh, the focus of my book, it's the focus of all my public speaking, is the internal power that we have uh, to, to overcome this. And, and I don't know how Jason would feel about this, but it's, it, it, I think a lot of times the mental health profession is way overlooking this and making it so complicated, but when you come down to it, the path might be difficult, but the path is a logical one to follow and relatively simple. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think there's um, a tendency to overcomplicate a lot of things in life. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, cutting through all the BS and some of the fog is um, is 
easier said than done, but um, I think it's your point is still valid in that <clears throat> it's it is pretty simple <clears throat> if you start with a place of personal integrity and responsibility, and from there building upon those pieces and appreciating uh, humility and, and humbleness and um, I think to your point seeking the answers. I, I think I would add this. If, if we look at my experience, we go through not just the, the, not having resolved the experiences of war when I first came home, but then I added to it the, the failure of a family, failure of a marriage, the alcoholism, and this went on for 30 years. You pile up or I piled up this whole um, file of failures that 30 years later, I had to go back in, and before I even got to the experiences of war, I had to resolve the alcoholism, I had to resolve the the failures in marriage, the estrangement from children, all of these other things that I had failed at along the way had to be resolved before I even got to the issues of war. So it makes much more sense, get to the issues of war and go on so that you don't have to do this uh, in a much more complicated uh, and frenzied way 30 years from now, 40 years. And if you are at that point, uh, for example, the, the largest number of veterans coming in for help at the VA right now are Vietnam veterans because they are retiring and they have been workaholics so that once they retire, they don't have the activities of work to keep them occupied. So there's just tremendous value in taking the power, disregard any stigmas. So stigmas really, only has the power that the individual gives it and, and just say I want my home and my family first of all to be the center of happiness and love and I'm going to go out as a warrior and take the lead take the discipline and make that exactly as it should be and I'm not going to let my family my children my wife anyone in my family suffer uh, as secondarily because of uh, my failure to go out and get these answers. Michael, thank you so much. And Jason, thank you for sharing your experiences as well. I think we've all learned an enormous amount. I urge you to read his books. And thank you so much for both of you sharing your experiences today. We'll talk next week with another show. Enjoy your week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your